Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. On August 22, 1864, Abraham Lincoln made a brief speech to the 166th Ohio Infantry Regiment as it passed through Washington, in which he said, It is not merely for today, but for all time to come, that we should perpetuate for our children's children this great and free government which we have enjoyed all our lives. I happen temporarily to occupy this big white house. I'm a living witness that any one of your children may look to come here, as my father's child has. Well, thousands of books have been written about Lincoln, but few about the big white house he occupied. We'll talk about one of them with James Conroy, author of the Lincoln Prize winning Lincoln's White House, the People's White House, I'm sorry, the People's House in Wartime, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for North Carolina or its campuses, the UNC system, ECU, anybody else, just for myself, and I know our guests will do the same. Back tonight with another live Civil War Talk radio program last week. weren't here, so in the past two weeks, a lot of things have happened. It's been eventful. Uh, Many of my sports teams have been in action. University of Michigan bows out of the NCAA tournament, but UNC Chapel Hill is still in. No love lost here in Greenville for uh, UNC Chapel Hill, but since my daughter goes there, I'm pulling for them. Uh, In other national sports news, the Monstars, my team in the Pitt County Recreational Soccer League, Tied 2-2 with Reavers in our opening match. 
twice falling behind by one goal and then rallying back each time, making it overall a good tie. It's a good to be back out on the field, back out uh, using, as I, I try to do on the field, guile and deceit to make up for lack of speed and strength that the young people have. And boy, some of them get mad when you grab the shirt or get the elbow in. They don't like that. They want to exercise their fleet of foot uh, athletic gifts, and, and uh, they don't they don't like that aggressive defense much. But uh, but it's fun. Uh, the other reason we weren't here last week, of course, the only reason we weren't live with you last week was National History Day, the uh, annual regional competition held here at East Carolina University. Hundreds of children from sixth grade up to high school seniors from all over eastern North Carolina brought their exhibits and performances and papers and documentaries and whatever else they had produced, and we get to judge them. I this year judged the senior documentary, senior group documentary category, so I watched five ten-minute long videos produced by groups of high school students. And I was just astonished by the quality of the winning one. I learned something new, learned about Carey's Rebellion, 1711, something I knew nothing about beforehand. The students recreated it like it was Ken Burns. They interviewed professors. They recreated pieces with costumed actors on the grounds of historic plantations where the events really happened. They somehow got access to a two-masted sailing ship to recreate one part of the uh, the rebellion in 1711. It was really uh, quite a performance. If you find out that there's a National History Day competition anywhere in your neighborhood, you can help out, contact uh, your local middle school or high school history teachers, uh, see if they need judges, because we certainly need volunteer judges. All the history faculty do this, and that's not nearly enough for the hundreds of uh, contestants. So uh, we welcome people from the community who have any kind of interest in history. Judges work in pairs, so you get paired up with someone who hopefully knows uh, uh, something else about the topic if you don't. And it's just a great experience, uh, something you can consider doing. The other big news here at East Carolina last week was the installation of our new chancellor. I did indeed get to wear my Harvard finery, my pink gown, uh, as an institutional delegate representing Harvard University. My plan to be first in line was thwarted when my neighbor down the hall, my, my colleague in the history department, Ken Wilburn, who teaches history of Africa, uh, decided he would attend in his Oxford gown, which put him ahead of Harvard by 540 years. We go in order of seniority of, of institution on these rare occasions when we parade across campus. And uh, so Ken can just beat me at the post by 540. Uh, Harvard was the oldest American university. That's all I could get. But it was a good uh, event. It was a new era, I will say, for East Carolina University, for better or worse. The presentation that the new chancellor made involved uh, video and sound and production values far in excess of anything we had ever seen. Much more professional, much more, uh, I I don't want to say corporate in a negative way, but certainly something uh, that we 
we're not accustomed to seeing here in his uh, ambitions are great. He, he wants East Carolina to be, in his words, the next great national university, which is an interesting uh, set of goals. At lunch, we had a big lunch on the, the mall, the, uh, the center grassy space of campus here afterwards and one of the board of trustees was sitting at the table I was at we're chatting and he said well aren't we already great to which the answer was we're certainly very good at some things but we're not a national university in the sense that say Southern Cal is no one calls it the University of South California by mistake whereas people are always calling East Carolina Eastern Carolina which is a sure way to get on our bad side how can we become national so everyone on the West Coast says, oh, East Carolina, we've heard of them. And that was the subject of the discussion. And one topic that came up was funded research, uh, joining the the big league in in, uh, scientific research. Another way, of course, was athletics. If the Pirates win a few big bowl games, everybody will hear of them. And I didn't say anything, but I thought, you know, People who listen to Civil War talk radio, I'm, I'm doing my, my two cents worth here uh, because I, I would guess a fair number of, of you listening would not otherwise have heard of East Carolina University uh, but for Civil War talk radio. So we're getting something done, uh, and that's good. One last comment on campus. Uh, at a deans and chairs meeting I attended recently, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences made a comment that implied he had listened to the podcast the week before. He, he, I had said something about the uh, the procession and, and the Harvard connection, and he made some reference to that in the meeting, uh, making quite apparent that he occasionally listens. I just thought that was very interesting because in, in the first 13 years, I don't think anyone on campus has actually listened to the show. Uh, I have no more to say about that. Next topic... Uh, the dean, the College of Arts and Sciences at East Carolina has the best leadership anywhere on campus, and I support all the dean's initiatives, whatever they may be in the future, uh, without question. All right, we're done with that. Next topic. It's not too late to sign up for this hallowed ground, the annual tour of Civil War battlefields. Contact stephenambrosetours.com. Come join us May 20th through 28th. Love to have you. I know there are some... Uh, listeners who will be on the tour this year and hope there will be more of you. Check out, of course, impedimentsofwar.org to find out who's going to be on the show next and to donate to the book fund, always welcome. Uh, Donate $25, get a copy of David Long's book. You've heard about that. Next week, as you'll see there, we have Scott Hopkins joining us to talk about Civil War tokens, which turn out to be essentially private issue coins. You can uh, learn about this if you're curious by going to uh, uh, cwtoken.com, and that's what I'm going to do so I have some intelligent questions to ask Scott next week. The following week, Dennis Fry, uh, National Park Service, uh, works at Harper's Ferry, author of September Suspense, Lincoln's Union in Peril, about the 1862 campaign. And then a bunch of uh, 
equally interesting works the rest of the way, all the way through June. Uh, very quickly, Judy Giesberg, Sex and the Civil War on the 19th. Jonathan White, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams during the Civil War. 26th. In May, we've got Gary Cross, a licensed battlefield guide of legendary status at Gettysburg. Uh, We'll be talking about that battle. On May 10th, Drew Gruber, executive director for Civil War Trails, will be with us. And then we've got uh, other ones, no live show on the 24th during the tour, but Wrapping up the season, end of May, and in June, we'll have people like Dave Powell, who's been on the show before, talking about Chickamauga and his trilogy. We'll have Tim Smith, requested by many of you. Uh, His new book, Grant Invades Tennessee, uh, is out, and I look forward to reading that. We'll have jazz musician Kevin McCarthy uh, talk about his composition inspired by the Civil War, something different. So lots of good stuff coming up the rest of the year. Join us for all of those. But let's get to Lincoln's White House, the People's House in Wartime. The author, James B. Conroy, comes back to the show. Jim, are you there? I am, and glad to be here. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. Well, the last time you were on, we were talking about your book about the, uh, the, the Hampton Roads Conference, and folks who want to hear about your background can go back and tune in that, uh, but uh, we did talk about the practice of law a little bit. Uh, it looks like the, the Hampton Roads book did well enough to inspire you to write another one, and this one did well enough to win the Lincoln Prize, so congratulations. Thank you. I keep uh, waiting for somebody to call me and tell me it was a mistake, but not so far. <laughs> so like, the, like the Oscars, uh, at some point they're going to come up, exactly. oh, we're, we're sorry, it turns out you know, Bill O'Reilly's ghostwriter actually won yeah. for one of his... Wrong uh, envelope, uh, right. Yeah, exactly. That, that could happen. Hopefully not. Um, well, why the uh, the Lincoln White House? Uh, uh, what, what brought you to this topic? Well, I have found that what I most enjoy doing, and I think I'm probably best at, is sort of getting into the uh, day-to-day life and... Uh, what Michael Burlingame has described as empathetic history, Um, what it was really like to kind of be there as opposed to dwelling on facts and figures and movements of armies and chronologies and such. Uh, I really enjoy uh, learning about the people who populated the Civil War and uh, in this case specifically uh, Lincoln's White House during the Civil War. And um, the book basically delves into the staff and the servants and the Lincolns themselves and uh, the people who did business there and were entertained there and tries to bring that to life and adds some new perspectives, I think, and a lot of new material that even uh, devoted Lincoln readers don't necessarily know. I get that comment a lot that People will email me or talk to me or come up to me at a book presentation and say, you know, I, I've read 15 or 20 Lincoln books and half of what was in your book I didn't know. So that's, uh, that's what I tried to do. That, that's a, a nice comment to get. Uh, well, I can't resist asking, what's a typical uh, bit of, of information or, or, or presentation that, that people come up to you and say they, they didn't know this before? Well, um, most people who are into Lincoln know quite a bit about John Hay, who was um, 
a brilliant young man on Lincoln's staff of three, total of three, um, who went on in later life to become Secretary of State under Teddy Roosevelt. But uh, most people know something about him, and, and a lot of people know something about John Nicolay, who was his official private secretary. But very few people know much about the third staff uh, member, um, uh, William Stoddard, who is a very bright, funny, uh, good writer, uh, journalist by trade, who wrote several memoirs uh, in later years about his time in Lincoln's White House. And uh, some of his, uh, some of the details of his factual uh, renderings of, of important events are a bit off from time to time, so you have to be careful with him. But what really what he really contributes is a, is a kind of a vivid uh, sense of what it was really like to be there. The sights and sounds and smells even of, of Lincoln's White House come to life through William Stoddard. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of a new material. And in addition to that, I, I really found by digging deep a lot of vignettes that I think brought the place to life in a lot of ways that people don't typically know. There's one that I always think of that I found very late in the research um, John Hay, again, was, uh, after the assassination, was actually cleaning out Lincoln's office, sort of boxing up his personal effects. And a friend of his, uh, who's a journalist, was sitting there at Lincoln's desk, actually writing up his notes while Hay was doing that. And it's kind of a moving little vignette, and little Tad Lincoln is running in and out of the office, and the journalist goes up to a map on the wall of the um, battle uh, battlefronts and sees pin marks and pencil marks on them and, you know, wonders if Lincoln uh, had done that or someone else had done it. It just sort of brought the, the scene to life in a, in a kind of a moving way. That's an example. That, that's a, a great story. We're going to take a short break, come right back, talk more about Lincoln's White House, the People's House in wartime. We're talking tonight with the author, James B. Conroy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James B. Conroy, author of Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime, a fascinating look at the White House, what it was like to live there, to work there, during the Lincoln administration, during the Civil War. Uh, listeners, one thing you want to do uh, to help follow along, best of all, is buy the book and have it in front of you while you're listening, and then you can turn to the map inside the diagram of the White House uh, that labels the rooms so you can see which one is the blue room, uh, which one is the library, the one we today call the Oval Office, where Lincoln's office was, and so on. And you can really follow along much better with that. You can also go to sites like uh, www.whitehousemuseum.org and find similar maps there. But uh, if you've got time while you're listening, that'll be a handy thing to have. Uh, Jim, I wanted, you, you mentioned Stoddard in our, our first segment, and I was struck by that as I was reading, that there's, there is a lot of, uh, of William Stoddard in this, more than there is of hay and more hay than of, of Nicolay, of the, the president's three uh, secretaries. But as you, you remarked, uh, Stoddard gets some of his facts wrong, and I recall hearing that, that among Lincoln uh, uh, scholars, Stoddard is, is maybe suspect is too strong a word, but certainly not as reliable on, on specifics as, as Hay might be. So I, I was struck by your choice to use him as extensively as you did. Uh, was it the, 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 the intrigue of his writing? Uh, what, what brought you to that decision? Well, um, part, part of it is that, uh, again, people who read deeply into Lincoln know Hay pretty well, and know, they know Nicolay uh, pretty mm-hmm. well. Nicolay, I think, is the least interesting of the three. Um, he's a you know capable, solid uh, staff person, but not a terribly exciting one, and and not uh, not a particularly interesting person. I think, frankly, uh, Hay is a brilliant uh, character and witty, uh, very appealing uh, young man. Uh, if I were going to have dinner with any of them, it would most certainly be John Hay. But um, William Stoddard is neglected and overlooked. I think in in the histories, um, I don't rely on Stoddard for the details of anything important, you know, with regard to political activity or military activity. But he's very observant of the sort of day to day flow in the White House, um, the feel of the place, the you know, the character of the people around him, the uh, the atmospherics. He's very good on and uh, very depthy on those, and he brings them to life quite well. Um, he talks, for instance, about um, looking up from his desk one day and seeing this attractive woman who 
had unfortunately lost her husband and um, was desperate for help and, you know, wandering around looking for the president. And it's a very touching kind of scene. You don't get that in um, your standard histories, you know, of Lincoln. Uh, he mm-hmm. talks about, uh, you know, the, the desk that he worked at that uh, was this big, massive uh, correspondence desk where he handled the mail and uh, the Lincoln boys carved it up one day with their pen knives, which they had just gotten for, uh, as a gift. Um, he talks about people writing to the president, all sorts from serious people to otherwise, and says at one point that he was convinced that uh, whenever anyone goes plump crazy, he sits down and writes a letter to the President of the United States. <laughs> so it's stuff like that that brings it alive and, and gives you a different feel for it than you get elsewhere, I think. There's also the sense that, that comes through in your uh, writing that there's a pecking order that, that Nicolay, as you say, is the senior secretary. Hay is, is very uh, clever and confident and, and has uh, almost a filial relationship with President Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And Stoddard is is the third guy out. He's not quite in the fraternity. Right. Uh, he thinks he's friends with Hay, but Hay behind his back is like, yeah, there's that Stoddard guy. Right. You know, he and, and he writes these things almost as if he wants to write himself into the story uh, almost as, as he wishes it were and you know having we weren't there we can't say how yeah. accurate that is but th- there's almost a pathos to that yeah there is I think he's candid to say that he was not in the inner circle and uh, he saw the president every day but he rarely spoke to him uh, I don't think he tries to exaggerate his importance but he does uh, play that role of the sort of Actually, he's kind of a wise guy, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, he's sarcastic, and he's, he's got a biting kind of wit, and he takes a piece out of Hay now and then. He certainly takes a piece out of Nicolay. Um, and he just adds an element that uh, that I think makes it more interesting. It, d- it does. Now, I want to ask you about some of the rhetorical strategies in the book, Uh Frequently on the show, we'll we'll talk about a book sort of chronologically if someone's written about a military campaign because that's the easiest way to understand it. But you're writing about the the texture of life in the White House. It's not a day to day account. It's about how, as you say, how it felt, what happened on a regular basis, what it mm-hmm. smelled like, looked like. Um, one thing that that really struck me was that you described the goings on in the White House, uh, beginning with Lincoln moving in, of course. Uh, but then you talk about all kinds of things happening for really well past page 100 before the war even begins. Right. Uh, the, this is not a war book in that sense, is it? No, I mean, the war is, is largely off camera in this book, uh, other than the officers and enlisted men who come through and and visit with Lincoln, either officially in their high military capacities or as... Uh, you know, messengers and reporters for General Sherman. Uh, there's a passage in the book about Sherman having taken Atlanta, and Lincoln, you know, got this famous wire that Savannah's been, I'm sorry, not Atlanta, but Savannah, that Savannah had been presented to him as a Christmas present. And um, But then days went by without any word from Sherman, and suddenly uh, a card gets handed in to Lincoln from the doorman that says there's a young officer here from General Sherman, and uh, he's he's escorted in immediately, and Lincoln's, you know, washing his hands at the sink, and he 
beckons him in and says, you know, I drop everything when I hear from General Sherman. And this young officer, he's probably in his early 20s, describes uh, this encounter with Lincoln as, uh, you know, as Sherman's messenger. And you have uh, wounded soldiers coming through. You have heroic soldiers who are decorated by the president. And, you know, he's obviously admiring them. And uh, Hay talks about how, you know, he sits like a 10-year-old and listens to these stories from these men. So there is that element of the war uh, passing through. And, of course, it dominates everything. But, you know, I think there are many other books. As we know, there are many, many other books that, um, that get into great detail on the strategy and the tactics of the war. Um, this is, I think, the only book that does what I set out to do, which is to you know, take you inside that White House during those four years and see what it was like to be there. And well, one of the things that comes through very clearly is that even with the war on, even with the nation's fate at stake, uh, that's no reason not to interrupt one's personal quest for a government job. Right. Uh, the hordes of office seekers. <laughs> Talk about the, the, the Lincoln's daily ordeal with office seekers. Sure. Uh, well, well, in the first, particularly in the first uh, month or so of his uh, time in in office, um, March through the, the the first part of April, just before the war started, um, he was just totally besieged by office seekers. Uh, one of the remarkable things about those days is that uh, anyone who wanted to could could literally walk into the White House whenever they felt like it and uh, walk up the stairs in those days to Lincoln's office on the second floor and uh, wait long enough and you would get in to see the President of the United States and he would, you know, the, the waiting room would be jammed literally with hundreds of uh, men uh, waiting to see him and as he walked out of his office on his way to lunch People would be waving resumes in his face and thrusting documents in his hands and literally crazy stuff as far as uh, access to the president. And um, I like to tell a story about uh, this very simple man that uh, was interviewing for a doorman job. I mean, imagine being interviewed by the president for the position of doorman uh, with the country on the edge of a civil war, but this is what he did. And... um, he, he says to this guy, well, have, have you got any experience, uh, you know, as a doorman? Well, no actual experience, Mr. President. Lincoln says, well, have you got any theoretical experience? <laughs> well, no. Have, have, you, have you attended any lectures on doorkeeping? Uh, no, I can't say. Have you, have you uh, read any books on the principles of doorkeeping? Uh, well, no, Mr. President. He says, well, can't you see, my good man, that you're just not qualified for this important position? And uh, Hay writes out that the, the poor guy left almost happy. Uh, with this encounter with the president. So there's that kind of empathy coming through of, of Lincoln as a good person, you know, taking time out of his incredibly uh, burdensome uh, day to spend time with people like that. Now, you mentioned when he goes out of his office, the the uh, crowds are out in the hallway. But at some point in the war, a I seem to recall reading that there was either a door or a sort of passageway constructed from uh, Lincoln's office, which is today the Lincoln bedroom, right? That that went down that would allow him to get out of the office and stay behind this this plywood barrier. Right. Well, until that happened, you know, he could only walk out into a public 
waiting right. room, which was quite a large waiting room. Um, he could only walk out his, his door through that large public waiting room to get to the family quarters at the other end of the second floor. So he, the only change he ever made in the White House was to have a, a, a partition built uh, through the adjoining anteroom to his office, and that partition uh, blocked off that anteroom from sight so that he could walk through that little passageway into the library, and that was part of the living quarters. So he had this kind of, you know, surreptitious route to get from uh, his office to his living quarters and back so people wouldn't besiege him. Right. Now, the library on the second floor is what we today think of as the, as the Oval Office. Uh, is that right? Uh, absolutely not. Um, the Oval Office of today was, is in the West Wing, which didn't exist in Lincoln's time. Um, that was built uh, in, at the end of the 19th century, and uh, I think it was Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, that first used it. But it, it is oval in shape. It's the, it's the oval-shaped library now in the uh, family quarters. Um, so uh, that's the room that he would access through that little back passageway. Okay. So the, and the president's office itself was a much smaller room. Again, right. Uh, it's what we now call the Lincoln bedroom. It never was his bedroom. Um, his bedroom was where the president's bedroom is now, at the um, what is it? The southwest corner of the uh, of the house, and the office space was in the eastern end of the house, over the east room. Um, and you had to go upstairs to get there and. As I say, people could uh, could walk in and sit in the green room and write a letter if they felt like it, walk upstairs and wait for the president to come out and shake his hand or ask him for a job or tell him what you thought about, you know, the issue that was important to you. Direct access. Now, there, were, it, there was almost no security, not literally no. There, there was actually a doorkeeper. Uh, uh, there was. Uh, there McManus. was a doorkeeper at the front door and also at Lincoln's office door. Um, but it was kind of the matador defense. They just kind of wave you past as you, as you walked in um, uh, at the front door. And then at Lincoln's office, you know, you, did, you couldn't just walk into Lincoln's office, but um, mm-hmm. you could wait in the ante room or in the waiting room and uh, take your turn. And if you came back, if it was a busy time, as it often was. You didn't get in one day, you come back the next day. Eventually, you would get in, and you would see the president face-to-face. You talk quite and, a bit and about... Throughout the Civil War, by the way, there was never a time when that was not, uh, when mm-hmm. that was not a possibility. There was some emphasis on security, especially as the war went on. There were, at least there were attempts to provide mm-hmm. some military protection for the president, but he didn't seem uh, very interested in it, at least not when he was on the grounds of the White House. He actually was uh, opposed to it. Um, And I'll tell you what little there was. In in the beginning, there was literally none. Mm -hmm. Um, When the war was underway and the northern militia regiments began to arrive, uh, they they posted sentries uh, at the gates and at the uh, front door. The uh, gates were guarded by... uh, cavalry, uh, uh, pairs of cavalry at each gate, and uh, two sentries uh, patrolling uh, in a crisscross pattern in front of the front door. But they were really, as one of them said, uh, more decorative than useful. Um, They really didn't stop anybody. They didn't try to stop anybody. There was no challenging of anyone. Why are you here? You know, no searches, no pat-downs. 
at any time throughout the uh, Civil War. It was only at the very end of the war, uh, in the last two or three months, that they had uh, finally assigned four Washington policemen to uh, the president, uh, who were supposed to stay close to him at all times in shifts, uh, and they generally did, but we're talking about one police officer, all of whom were disciplined at one time or another for <laughs> drunkenness or animal cruelty and abusing people on the streets and such. And, of course, on the fatal night of uh, Ford's Theater, uh, that, wa- that Washington City policeman who was assigned to Lincoln was next door having a drink. So uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't security to speak of at any time. Now, that was something that I learned from this book, uh, that the detail of the Washington policeman was not uh, an all-star crew, that all, all of yeah. them had been disciplined in the past. They were, yeah. This was like uh, a place to put your worst officers. Uh, yeah, which was something to say, because the, the D.C. police force was a motley crew. Uh, they were paid less than lamplighters, and uh, they really just attracted kind of uh, you know, the, the losers who couldn't do anything else. So it was not uh, it was not a desirable situation. So the uh, when you get to the assassination, this is no spoiler alert necessary. I think people right. know how the story ends. Uh, I thought one of the again one of the rhetorical strategies you use that I found very uh, intriguing is that you tell the assassination story from the vantage point of the White House and people who are in it. You don't follow the story to Ford's Theater or uh, across the street to Lincoln's deathbed, the Peterson House. Uh, it's all just how the news got back to the White House and who was there and so on, uh, which is a, a challenge that any writer faces trying to tell that story because everyone knows the story. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, James McPherson and Battle Cry of Freedom you get you right up to that page and then, you, you know, Lincoln's going to the theater, you turn the page and it's two weeks later. He just skips right. over... Because, as if to say, what could I possibly tell you? Right. Uh, I've been told many times, right. And and you find a way to do the same. Uh, There's so much more to talk about in this book, but we need to take another break. So we'll step away. We'll come back. I'll ask you about the other primary occupant, uh, Mrs. Lincoln, when we return. Talking tonight with James B. Conroy, author of Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James B. Conroy, author of Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime. It is a very interesting look at the texture of life in the Lincoln White House, what it was like to be the president, but also to be a secretary or to be a doorkeeper or to be one of the few soldiers occasionally guarding or the Lincoln children. Or, uh, and I definitely want to ask you about this, uh, Mrs. Lincoln, your sympathy for Mrs. Lincoln is limited um, and then this is something where Lincoln authors fall all across the spectrum. I let me just, in the interest of disclosure, I wrote and uh, did Lincoln on slaves that I once noticed that there was a correlation that between a historian's own marriage and how happily they viewed the Lincoln marriage, uh, which could get me in trouble with some people, and I. I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. It was just a correlation I noticed at the time. Uh, but your, your work, I'm curious to know. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so, well, well how, how does, how, how do you see, uh, well, I, I guess you seem to see Mary as, as victimized by the people around her more than, than herself uh, uh, in, in a negative light. Is that a, a fair well, summary? Well, that's, that's Largely true. Um, I think most people have a general sense that Mary was emotionally unstable mm-hmm. and uh, difficult and, um, you know, problematic for, for Lincoln in a lot of ways. I think people generally have that sense. And I think mm-hmm. people rightly have a sense of sympathy for her because of what she endured with the loss of her children and her husband. Um, mm-hmm. But um, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, uh, she had lost... Um, a child before they came to the White House, and she lost another in the White House. But that was not at all uncommon in those days. Uh, child mortality was, uh, you know, much much more than anything we can even imagine. So it was it was no, I guess you want to call it an excuse. I don't think it's an excuse. Mm-hmm. The, the the end of it, I think, is that she definitely has some serious character flaws and some emotional imbalance that's quite apparent. But um, she was also very much taken advantage of by what can only be described, I think, as con men who would come to her open receptions, which she had 
once a week in season uh, between New Year's Day and Lent. Um, anyone who wanted to could go to Mary's weekly uh, receptions. And um, several sort of apparently sophisticated, polished Eastern folks with affected English accents, you know, kind of sidled up to her at these things and flattered her and made her feel important and welcomed in the East, you know, from the country life that she lived more or less uh, uh, in uh, Kentucky where she came from and then in Illinois. And, and they basically used her and lured her into situations where she was betraying White House secrets that wound up in the newspapers that people uh, took advantage of to speculate in the stock market or in the gold market um, and uh, used her in all sorts of nefarious ways. So, yes, there was, there was a good bit of that. Um, yeah, but in addition to that, I think there, I'm far from a psychiatrist, but I think she had something uh, by way of uh, um, a defect uh, that led her to uh, buy uh, beyond extravagantly. Really, uh, shopaholic was a word that wasn't invented, but Mary could have invented it. Uh, she, you know, at the time of Lincoln's death, the executor of his estate uh, found bills for literally hundreds of pairs of gloves that she had bought, uh, $10,000 cashmere shawls that in today's money would be absurdly expensive. Um, jewelry, you know, all kinds of baubles and anything really that glittered. There was really something wrong there. And um, I, I could spend the rest of the time talking about Mary, but I think you get the idea. <laughs> well, she, I was aware that uh, she had a $20,000 allowance to redecorate the White House mm -hmm. and you you paint a very clear picture at the beginning of the book of how dilapidated the White House was mm -hmm. when the Lincolns moved in. I, I was unaware that that was a standard practice that other presidents had gotten the same amount because um, mm -hmm. Buchanan apparently didn't use his all that well. But uh, but she spent that and more, and you describe the the luxury with which she tried to redecorate the White House. But... It, your point about her coming from the West is a good one. She was in a tough spot. If she had decorated the White House extravagantly during wartime, uh, Americans, including her husband, uh, were offended at that use of money. On the other hand, if she had failed to decorate the White House, then she would be held up to ridicule as a, a this corncob pipe-smoking countrywoman, a mm -hmm. uh, log cabin dweller in the White House. So she felt she had to establish uh, her family's credibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you have to give her credit that uh, she took uh, what Stoddard again referred to as a third-class hotel mm -hmm. and uh, made it into quite a show place. And it was really quite beautifully done, and uh, she was tasteful, and she did it very well. But she took that $20,000 budget and spent $28,000 in the first few weeks mm -hmm. and uh, went, went from there and then uh, panicked when the bills started to come in and she didn't have the means to pay them. And uh, another example of being lured into a bad orbit, um, the White House gardener, a guy by the name of Watt, um, had um, developed a, a friendship with her because she loved plants and such, and um, told her basically, look, here's how you can hide these bills and, you know, take uh, a bill for uh, whatever um, silver tea service and uh, put it down as uh, refurbishing the... 
the chandeliers in the White House so that it'll look like, you know, um, it's a necessary expense. And she proceeded to do all of that. And this all came to light um, to several congressmen and, and senators. And unlike anything that would remotely happen today, they basically looked the other way, including members of his own party and members of the opposition party on the theory that we just can't have this scandal. It would be, uh, it would be a tragedy for the country, and we're not going to let that happen. So nothing that would happen today, that's for sure. There are many differences in the White House uh, in the 21st century and the 19th century, uh, uh, of which that, that's certainly a major one. Uh, the physical differences as well, the, the, the way it was set up was different, uh, but, but that, the politics were very different. The, even with the $20,000, $28,000 of, of uh, improvements and decoration and, and uh, all that Mary did to make the house more livable and more attractive and more appropriate as the chief executive's house, the executive mansion. Still, there are times as I was reading this book, I was thinking, boy, I'm better off at my house on Oxford Road today in Greenville, North Carolina, than it'd be in the White House. Um, they do have running water. They do have uh, uh, gas lighting, but they don't have any way to keep the bugs out. Right. Yeah, John Hay uh, has a great... Uh a great line where um, he's uh, writing a letter. Well, actually, there's two levels to it. I should start uh, start again. Nicolay, John Nicolay, writes to his fiance back in Illinois about being invaded by all bugdom, as he calls it, um, with the window open. And, of course, there were no screens in those days. So you had the choice on a hot, humid Washington day to either keep the windows closed and be steamed or open the windows and get a little breeze, but have you know every mosquito in 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 uh, creation come in through that window. So there was that, and then the second thing was that there was a stagnant canal um, right at the foot of the White House grounds where Constitution Avenue is today. Uh, anybody who's been to Washington and uh, walked along the mall, the the main avenue that borders the mall was a canal in those days, and it was a stagnant canal. It hadn't been used in decades. And uh, you can imagine stagnant old water full of dead animals and all kinds of other atrocities in July and August and uh, the smell that that created. And uh, John Hayes writing a letter one day and from his, uh, his room in the uh, White House and says that he's uh, sitting there composing that letter with the ghosts of 20,000 dead cats. So you get a sense of how unpleasant it was to be in the White House in July and August in those days. There, there are some compensations. Uh, you talk about the, the greenhouse that allowed them to have fresh flowers and mm-hmm. strawberries uh, through the year. Uh, the South Lawn, although it does take one down to the canal, uh, is also the scene of concerts where the Marine Band would play mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Washingtonians would would just stroll the grounds and listen. Yeah, open to the public. But, but that also brought up uh, yet another the, the 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 what's what's the word the the moments for for Lincoln. Uh, the, those concerts were canceled after Willie Lincoln's death, but eventually resumed. But you describe Lincoln going out on the south you know, portico to listen. But by this time of the war, uh, every time he shows up 
where the public can see him, they all cry for a speech. He can't just listen mm-hmm. to the concert. He right. can't. He can't go anywhere. Right. Yeah, which of course is true of the president today. But in in those days, uh, the grounds were open to the public uh, anytime except on Sundays, and they would have these Marine Band concerts in the spring and summer out on the South Lawn that were quite. Uh, quite pleasant. The Marine Band was a superb band, um, largely populated by Italian musicians uh, brought over from Italy and put them on uh, in red Marine uniforms, and uh, they were suddenly the Marine Band. But, um, yeah, Lincoln would really love the music, and, and he would go out on the South Portico and sit there and listen, but people would, you know, yell for a speech and come up to him and annoy him and harass him and the rest and finally he'd go inside and just sit in the uh, in the uh, blue room uh, with the windows open and listen to the music so that he couldn't be wouldn't be bothered one other character i want to mention uh and, and hear from you about is, is william johnson lincoln's uh, personal uh servant personal valet mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh interesting case because he comes with lincoln from illinois but he is shunned by the other White House staff, all of whom are mixed race or African American, uh, because Johnson is more African than they are. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting little story that I don't think is often told and, and known. Um, uh, Lincoln had brought Johnson with him from Springfield, Illinois, and um, there was a kind of an elite class of uh, White House servants who were almost all. Um, descended from plantation owners and, the, and their slaves. So they were of mixed race, and they were light-skinned. Some of them were really quite light-skinned, and they had a kind of a social system in which they, you know, they were racially prejudiced themselves and uh, would not tolerate this very dark-skinned valet that Lincoln had brought with him uh, into the White House and shunned him and made his life miserable. And eventually Lincoln, uh, Lincoln pulled him and um, got him a job at the Treasury Department as a messenger and uh, had him come in and cut his hair and such in the morning and paid him extra for those services. But he was basically driven out of the White House. And uh, I think it's the spin on that that's sort of interesting is that Lincoln did not summon those servants or go down into the servants' quarters and say, look, this guy's going to stay and you're going to welcome him and that's the way it's going to be. He sort of caved into the servants and uh, went along with their system and, um, you know, uh, took care of uh, William, but not in the way that he would have liked to have done. It's one of the many intriguing minor stories of this. Uh, We have just a minute left and and there are so many interesting stories in the book. Are there any Anything we should have talked about in the last hour, uh, in the last 30 seconds, we should share with the reader before before the show ends and they run out to buy the book, because uh, they will want to do that. Well, um, I don't know that there's any one thing that, that, uh, that we've talked about. I, I think that there are many, I know that there are many uh, characters in the book who are vivid, interesting uh, people that no one's ever heard of, one of whom is the... Irish doorkeeper who was native Irish-born, uh, Edward McManus, who had been there through seven administrations, and uh, quite the comical character who uh, would greet people according to his mood and 
how he sized them up and whether he thought he could benefit from them or not. And people like that, uh, that no one's ever heard of, who, when you read about them and you see what sort of people were surrounding Lincoln at the time, you, I think, really get a vivid sense of what his life was like and what uh, their lives were like. And hopefully a light is shown on all of that that hasn't uh, been shown in other books. Well, listeners, you can experience that by reading Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime by James B. Conroy. Uh, highly recommended, very entertaining uh, and enlightening story of life in the White House. Uh, Jim, it's been a pleasure talking with you about this book. I really enjoyed reading it and uh, best of luck with your next project. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.